Yeah, nerd being the operative word there, isn't it? That was that was a throw ride. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor, but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Good to be back. And Adam Smith. Hello. And Adam, you're going to be the focus of this episode. It's almost like the second part of our religious education talk. But first, Neil, what you reading for? What are you reading for? So I've been quite fortunate that I've managed to um, get my hands on a copy of The Science of Reading, uh, a handbook, the second edition, which came out. And it's a 605-page epitome of just the latest um, research. You can imagine the conversations that Chris Such and I are having behind the scenes um, all about this. And I've been taking it uh, chapter by chapter. You don't have to read it in any kind of particular order whatsoever. But I've gone for recently a chapter called Models of Word Reading. What have we learned? And that's by uh, Mark Seidenberg, Molly Barry Thorne and Jason uh, D. Zevin, which is probably the coolest research name out there, I think. Um, and this chapter just looks at the evidence behind what is uh, known as the kind of the dual root cascade theory of reading versus Seinberg's own connectionist model of reading, um, which uh, people might know as the uh, the triangle model, where we look at the orthography, uh, semantics, and phonology uh, roots, and that how people kind of uh, translate writing into sound, which they then perceive and understand. It's real kind of Seidenberg um, heavy. If you've read his book, there's kind of nothing new here, but it's kind of quite interesting to know how he went about creating this model and why he thinks it's superior to the, uh, the dual root uh, model. So plenty to nerd out about for those that are particularly interested in it, which isn't many people. Adam, what are you reading for? Yeah, nerd being the operative word there, isn't it? That was that was a throw ride. Um, so I am reading, uh, I am reading How the Other Half Learns uh, by Robert Pondiscio, uh, which is a book that I've, I was, rec- I think John Hutchinson recommended it. So I, I put it onto my Kindle and started reading it um, on the way to work. And um, it's about uh, success academies in New York, uh, which is a kind of chain of charter schools. Um, and it's about their a battle. I mean, it really has been a fight in New York between the public school system and this charter school system um, and about the, the kind of culture in those schools. Um, they're all, I mean, primarily, they were all increasingly, as they expand their less so, but they were all in the like most deprived, least well-performing public school areas in, in your Harlems and your... Bronx and and Queens and things like that and uh, it's yeah all about raising expectations raising aspirations what's really interesting is there's this character Eva Moskovitz who is the uh, you know the head of success academies and she's kind of a bit of a I would is it fair to call her an American Catherine Burbleson she's not got the she's not quite so invested in the culture wars um, as far as I know she's 
more about fighting for this charter school system but she just goes out and gets what she wants you know she just puts it out there she's very candid in what she says in her management style uh it's really interesting i mean schools themselves pedagogically i probably don't really agree with some of what they do the ways they teach reading and and um the way that they teach maths for example and the fact that they do like project-based learning and stuff like that it's not as kind of like British trad as you would expect in terms of the pedagogy and the curriculum but the fact that she thought this was a way to increase social mobility and outcomes for the poorest people in New York and then she just went and went from like one school to like hundreds of charter schools you know all doing this and just kind of like went to war with the unions and went to war with different people I've I found that very um, interesting I think sometimes you just need these forceful personalities to make change happen we've all talked at length about our sort of like changes that we would like to see um and maybe it just needs an Eva Moscovich to uh go out and bang heads together and and uh and get things done oh and Kieran <laughs> what are you reading for so this week I've been reading effects of working memory capacity bilingualism and language proficiency on ambiguous relative clause attachment and it's a really interesting paper that I think allows us to see some of the parts of being fluent in a language that we almost take for granted. So I'm going to give you guys an example. And I want you to tell me where you would attach the relative clause or the so. So the friend of the movie star who was sitting on the balcony was under investigation. Who's sitting on the balcony? The friend of the movie star who was under investigation was sitting on the balcony. Yeah, that's what I would have gone for, but it almost seems too obvious. It must be a trick, so I'm kind of thinking about it too much. Oh, is it because the friend of the movie star who was sitting on the balcony was under investigation? There's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. <laughs> but what they do is they investigate what the preferences are in people who only speak English, people who speak English and Spanish, and then are there other similar situations in Spanish as well? And so... They have this group. So, for instance, if it was the movie star who was sitting on the balcony, it's people who would choose that, would choose that because it's the word that's being, the noun that's being processed. Whereas the friend has been processed quite a bit ago in the in the sentence. And so they're exploring that. I think that's a really good way to demonstrate um, exactly why this paper is so interesting, because we don't think about stuff like that. But we do um, we do it all the time. You know, so if you're, if you're going to call anyone a nerd, Adam, I reckon me and Neil have both done ourselves in. <laughs> the focus of this episode, Adam, is going to be the religious education curriculum that you have recently written and released into the world. In Yeah, released in a, a very small way at the moment into the world. It's making its first baby steps. Um, outside of our as on my school so can you give us a brief overview of what it is and what you have created yeah um okay so it is essentially a fully resourced year one to six re curriculum that consists of one kind of some of the units are half termly units some of the units are termly units but it's 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 clustered together in, into termly units Essentially, I think as I've, I've been on the podcast before people know, I, I started as a secondary RE teacher and I was recruited into my current school 
in part to work on this curriculum project alongside, you know, actually teaching and being class teacher. And it is the fruition of that project. So it's we sat down in January 2020 to sort of map out um, the essential kind of columns of knowledge that were going to be in there and the threads that we're going to pull through and which religions we were going to feature and kind of what cultural knowledge we wanted to be in there. And then during COVID, I um, spent a lot of time planning it. And then I was also, so I, I sort of planned a half term and then I virtually taught all six year groups. So I recorded all the videos for all six year groups during the first academic year of COVID. Second academic year of COVID, I recorded even more videos, um, and, but was also doing class teaching as well. Uh, and it meant that I actually got really familiar with this curriculum from a teacher's point of view. Um, but I, I taught all the way from year one to six. It's a year one to six, key stage one and key stage two curriculum. And yeah, so it's, it's basically, it's in its physical form, it is uh, PowerPoints for years one through to six. Um, the key stage one PowerPoints are kind of um, almost like a script for teachers. They're, they Sometimes they're like uh, quite a lot of text on the page because it's almost like doing a class book sometimes it's um like i say like a script so you're sort of talking about certain concepts and ideas in a way that uh, key stage one appropriate sometimes it's looking at images and things like that and discussing with the class you know this is the inside of a mosque or this is the uh this is a painting of the nativity what what can we remember about it and then key stage two is uh more the powerpoints are there to be read with the class um and the powerpoints are there to prompt questions and knowledge and discussion and then there are booklets that go with it as well i think people for some reason people really fixate on the booklets as if the booklets are the main kind of method through which it's taught but actually I think uh, that can be the case sometimes if they're really heavy, if a lot of the text and the reading is in the booklet, but these booklets are more to consolidate the knowledge and to offer extended writing opportunities. They're much more complement to the, the PowerPoints. And I guess the PowerPoints are a proxy for the teacher standing in the class teaching. Yeah. And so they cover, they cover all six of the um, major world religions. Well, you can't see me doing air quotes there if, if it's on a podcast, which is great. Uh, air quotes major world religions air quotes uh which is christianity and islam which is like the focus that runs through all of it key stage one focuses pretty much solely on, on christianity and islam to really lay those foundations and then judaism hinduism buddhism and sikhism all get a term or buddhism gets a half term uh so yeah so that's what it is and it's uh, like i say it's making its first tentative steps into the world so another primary school in our trust has been teaching it this academic year we've had it embedded for two probably full academic years now and then it's sort of like not i won't say obviously not final form but it's it's first draft first public beta form uh, is going out to a couple more schools hopefully maybe more will um, get on board before september um starting yeah in september so very exciting times nice i mean i reckon that would be immeasurably useful for a lot of people you know because if I think about my own upbringing, it was very narrow in terms of the theology that was explored, you know, very much open to other people's opinions, other people's sort of worldviews. But if when I went into the classroom in England, I had a lot of learning to do very, very quickly. And I think had I been able to draw on your expertise, then that would have made learning about Sikhism much easier than there. Uh, than it was 
just going to say, I saw you wince, Adam, when Kieran uh, mentioned the word, the phrase, uh, worldviews there. Just <laughs> a quick jolt of, uh, I was like, is he trolling you on purpose with that? <laughs> With that phrase, <laughs> we can talk about we can talk about worldviews later because it's not. Um, I uh, I've, I've written a piece for um, RE Today magazine uh, with a colleague of mine who is um, quite. The whole point of this piece is that we're quite at polar opposites in terms of the way we look at RE, and it was about this like conference that we went on the symposium again. You can't see me doing air quotes around the word symposium, but there we go. This symposium we went on and how we actually reconciled ourselves a little bit more. So although I do wince at worldviews, it's not quite such an all-consuming cringe as it perhaps was um, a while ago. But this definitely is something, in RE there is this debate about worldviews, and then in the same breath as people say worldviews, people in a very derisive way say, well, we've moved on from the world religions paradigm, and the world religions paradigm is framed entirely in the negative as something that is old-fashioned and bad and, uh, you know, like from the 1950s. Uh, and this is an unashamedly world religions paradigm curriculum. You know, it looks at faith uh, using, I don't want to say old-fashioned methods, but it, methods that I think are still the best way to get students to engage in the world around them. Uh, without it becoming an intensely like personal self-reflective I mean naturally any kind of RE is going to be personal self-reflective but this is that's not the purpose of this curriculum the purpose is like the power powerful knowledge the important knowledge the relevant knowledge about these religions and how we kind of I don't want to say transmit because that reminds me of like the banking method and Frere and stuff and I'm still not quite disposed of that kind of philosophy of education stuff that I did in my degree transmits not the right word but like introduce students to and get them engaged with and get them discussing um i think you said about sikhism you know and that's the thing about being an re person is that i don't have any expertise in sikhism <laughs> my degree was in theology i come from a catholic christian background you know that's where my expertise lies to some extent i know a bit more about islam the whole point of the reason i'm calling it a sort of beta program is that obviously i've used some research and external sources to create the, the bits of this that I'm not confident on and even the bits I am confident on as well because that's how you write a curriculum and if there are people out there who you know are from a Sikh background or have better knowledge and expertise in Sikhism hopefully the idea of is that this isn't just a one-way project of putting it out there and saying you know I'm brilliant and this is fantastic and you should use it but that it will be beta one beta two and then eventually there'll be a sort of a more polished alpha version of it um that will go out in uh, maybe more broadly because at the moment it's it's like i say it's a it's a public beta so i'm kind of controlling which schools are using it so that i can keep a, a lid on things because there is a gap in the market for it so there is some demand for it and i'm a little bit scared that it might i won't be able to kind of not have control over it, control's not the right word, but have, um, I don't want it to scale too quickly because I want to be able to go in and do the CPD myself and offer support myself and things like that, so. What must you have been thinking when it went into the Discord, you know, which you thought was a relatively small sample of teachers and then all of a sudden every school, you know, south of Birmingham wanted to have it as their RE curriculum. <laughs> well, I mean, the good thing is that I know how hard it is to see something that you really like and then try and get it past your slt and get the funding for it and do the invoices for it so it's all very well having like 100 schools say or 100 deputy heads or you know head of curriculum say oh yeah this is brilliant absolutely what i've been looking for 100 when i get it on board 
and that translates into like three people who might actually get around to like paying the invoice for it and arranging the CPD dates and actually implementing it. So that that is a mercy in a way is that loads of people interested in that love that it's fantastic it's brilliant I love talking about it but I'm quite glad that it's a fairly difficult process because it shows that people actually have to be quite committed to taking it on board and you know there is a cost associated with it as well because the school essentially bought me on for a year and paid me for a year more or less to just be an RE nerd and kind of and it's to repay that investment and to uh, yeah to get that investment not in sort of time from schools to make sure this is something they actually want to take on board and and use i don't think it's a matter it's not a huge outrageous amount it's 400 pounds which is at the moment you know will get you the curriculum it's not a per year thing it's you know you pay that and then we 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 get you the curriculum so the worldview thing wasn't wasn't me trying to troll you i do remember our conversation about it though although it was quite a while ago now but it was one of those situations where my brain took me into a sentence I thought I've got to get out of this sentence without insulting you know, 80% of the people who live in the world. So I'm just going to go with worldview. But yeah, but I've been thinking about philosophical worldviews as well, because, you know, you mentioned paradigms. I've been thinking about the juxtaposition between positivism and interpretivism. So maybe that's why that was on the, the tip of my tongue. It can't just have been lockdown that prompted you to create this? What was the inspiration and sort of the driving force behind this new curriculum? Well, I think the driving force behind it is it's almost like the final puzzle piece for my school. So we have a huge curriculum focus. We have been really focused on curriculum for like five years now, transformed our history curriculum into these like beautiful knowledge rich units with these great booklets transformed our geography curriculum our science curriculum is all really well thought through it's all really well sequenced it's all uh, connected it's, it's beautiful um, our maths and our English as well it's like in a really good place basically like we're sort of every year now we just tweak a little bit what we're doing instead of trying to create whole new units or really shift things about which is amazing not only from a curriculum point of view but from a workload point of view as well and RE was that last sort of missing piece so I was recruited by uh, an incredible woman called Cathy Buchanan who is now the CEO of the MAT but at the time as the head teacher and she knows me uh, or knew me through Twitter and she basically saw that I was leaving my secondary job I had no interest in primary teaching whatsoever and she was quite persistent in saying like you, you know you'll love it come and visit the school etc etc and she had this image or this idea in her head that Ari was this like last missing piece it would be good to get someone on board to do that so I looked at what they were doing in the school I looked at what they'd done in history and geography and I looked for briefly at the locally agreed syllabus and the materials they were using already and I decided that actually it was something I wanted to start from scratch with maybe that was like really egotistical and I was like you know this has to be a wholly you know a project that is entirely of my making but it's really refreshing terrifying and refreshing to have a blank slate and you're literally just plumbing in units here there and everywhere you're literally just you know writing a unit and it goes on the board and so yeah so that's what I did uh, and it would have got done even if there was no pandemic because that's what I was there uh, I think I was working four days a week I was doing cover here and there but primarily I was you know to be sitting in the staff room working on this curriculum and uh, yeah I mean it's, it's probably the time scale it might have been longer it might have been shorter but yes, it wasn't a pandemic project. It was a project that, that happened to take place during the pandemic. 
So on that note, and it kind of leads in really nicely to this next question that I have, having been, you know, being someone who has kind of had similar-esque roles, you know, brought in, write a curriculum for us, although mine was more of the result of the pandemic because that's I couldn't go in and help teachers teach. What um, were your guiding principles kind of throughout this process of writing this RE-based curriculum? I made no secret of the fact that I'm writing a book at the moment um, on primary RE, talking, basically talking about the curriculum and um, and what I've done at my school and, and how other schools can kind of like, it's about teaching RE essentially in the primary setting. And uh, I was writing a chapter um, this week and it was um, why should you teach RE? And it and I kind of built it into like five. I've broken each of my chapters down into five sections to make it a bit more manageable for myself. And it it was like why are you teaching RE? And it was section one is you have to. So um, the guiding principle behind it is there has to be on the national curriculum. Uh, oh, sorry, it is on the national curriculum almost as a single line to say you have to teach religious education. And that gives us as an academy a lot of freedom. But again, it's that paradox of freedom is actually very constraining because suddenly you've got infinite choice in terms of what you do. So we had to teach it. You have to teach it. Might as well be high quality. You might as well be doing something useful. You might as well be doing something meaningful. You might as well be doing something that is good instead of just saying, well, we do our hour, half an hour of RE and it's kind of we're a bit ashamed of it. And we do on a Friday afternoon. The second part of this chapter is that it's interesting. So that was a real guiding principle for me was that the kids have to be engaged in this stuff. They have to be interested by now. I happen to be such a massive RE nerd. that I think almost everything that I could have picked for the curriculum is interesting. So I had to stop thinking like me and start thinking like a year five or a year six or a year two or a year one and think what is interesting. Well, stories are interesting getting to poke your head around the door of somewhere you've never been is interesting getting to see the world through someone else to understand someone else's motivations in the world is interesting looking at modern questions like um, climate change and war is interesting so I thought it's got to be interesting and the number three was uh, is important there's an Edie Hirsch quote about having students be able to um basically they will have a good level of cultural literacy if they're able to understand the front page of the New York Times and to my mind RE is a great way of being able to achieve that goal with our students it provides a lot of hinterland knowledge it provides a lot of um, knowledge I guess I'm kind of previewing what I'm going to say in my fifth point which is a bit annoying uh, but that's very important RE is unlike almost any other subject because it has this massive caveat over it that our students go off to many many different secondary schools and there's always a slight chance that they will go off to a secondary school that you know for all that it's not as common as it used to be but it's still fairly common that will not teach RE again as a discrete subject so I think about that in terms of takeaways what we want our students to know at the end of year six but what is the important knowledge that they have to really know if they're never going to do RE again if, if the last RE lesson of year six is the last RE lesson they ever have Similarly, if they do end up doing RE again, what is the important knowledge that my secondary uh, teacher brain thinks should be embedded? So that was another sort of lens through which I looked at this. Another guiding principle was what is important if either they never do RE again or they have to do RE again, what is important? The fact that it's powerful is something I strongly, strongly believe. So number four is that it's powerful. The knowledge that students gain in RE is exactly the kind of knowledge that provides, um, opens doors for students. So all the kind of um, things that we think of as uh, 
indicators of social mobility so being able to go to art galleries and interpret the art that's on the walls there being able to pick up literary fiction novels being able to really like um enjoy uh our culture and i mean all elements of our culture as well not just what we would cliche kind of call high culture um re helps with that so when we're looking at sort of stories um from the old testament stories from the uh, from uh, the life of muhammad stories from the life of buddha these are all powerful stories that give our students different lenses through which to view the world um looking at like knowing what happens inside a mosque is powerful because then you can have a conversation with someone who uh, and have something in common with that person even if they might be from a very different cultural background and you can also act respectfully now when you go to a mosque or you go to another country that is perhaps predominantly islamic our students have that kind of powerful knowledge. So I think RE is, that's another guiding principle is what is the power of this knowledge? How is it actually gonna, our students in our school are, you know, they, they're lucky to live in very central London, but they're also, some of them are quite profoundly from quite profoundly deprived families. How does RE actually help with that? It's not just another bit of kind of useless knowledge. What is the power behind it? And then lastly, is that it builds on the whole curriculum. So where does RE fit in? Another guiding principle, I guess, how does it fit into our history curriculum? Luckily, it fits in really well with our English curriculum because we do all sorts of things. We do like Krishna stories in year five. So we do Hinduism in year five. But as I said, it's the hinterland knowledge as well. So Christine Council does this great bit about the Sats paper from years ago about the dodo and how you can draw out of that all these different specific domain words so historical words you can draw out of it scientific words you can draw out of it and, and a pr large amount of those words are re words like sacrifice for example you know the dodo sacrificed itself and so our students need to have a whole schema around that word sacrifice by the end of year six because it builds up to an idea that will be reintroduced in in year seven eight and nine so those are my guiding principles really and that's fortunately a little preview of what's coming in the book because that, yeah those five things are the things that I really that really drive me forwards with RE is that I really really believe that this subject actually does all those things I think if I didn't believe that I'd find <laughs> I, I think I'd have to find a different career really yeah I don't think that's unfortunate because not only do I now really want to read your book but um I want to actually go through that um you know I will find the 400 pound what you said earlier about all night well and good you know deputy heads you know saying yeah we want it but getting it through slt you know i'm now fired up to make sure that i can get it past uh slt or at least the, not slt but the, those that hold the purse strings because i actually just want to teach myself that curriculum because it just sounds incredibly interesting and having just come back from a short holiday in cornwall um i can kind of see how you know those in uh, children in rural areas kind of really need to see and understand all of these different viewpoints um, about different world religions just to really immerse themselves and understand the interconnected world that we all now live in. So given all of that, what was the toughest part of the process? I think I have two answers to this. I think the first one is the Sophie's choice of, of curriculum choice. And um, there's a lot said about key stage three curriculum choice, especially because up until really fairly recently, a lot of schools, including my previous secondary school, uh, shrunk down 
key stage three to just two years. So they would start teaching in GCSE in year nine. And that led to a lot of teachers having to get rid of essentially an entire year's worth of content and shrink down what they would do. Because by the time you get to GCSE, everything is very prescribed and you teach, even the order in which you teach things is, is almost set. Whereas at Key Stage 3, you have a lot of freedom about what you do. And so it's really upsetting for teachers. Um, it's really upsetting for me to only have two years of Key Stage 3 because there's so much you want to do in so little time. So when I arrived in primary, I thought, with that on my shoulders, that choice was going to be the hardest thing. And then, <laughs> then I realised, I have six years. I have six, uh, you know, uh, three terms and six half terms in each year. And actually, it's incredible. The key stage two is the longest key stage just imaginable. You can't fathom how much time you have from the beginning of year three to the end of year six. It feels almost as intimate that you could do uh, intimate, infinite, not intimate, infinite. Uh, you could do anything in that time. It's so long. And even key stage one, you know, you've got your two years to lay your foundations there. And so it wasn't, it was tough <laughs> spending that time wisely. It was tough not just doing like the chapter I was writing today was about how uh, every RE curriculum that people write is naturally a reflection of their person and their interests. And mine is no different. You know, there's a lot of art in mine, for example, because I'm, I'm really into my art history. I think it's fascinating how we can use art as a lens through which to teach RE and get children to understand RE better but I had to you know you have to knock off the deep end with that and make it just like you know the Adam Smith TM trademark RE curriculum this is basically just my brain dumped out over however many half terms it is um, so it was the choice the narrowing wasn't tough it was the not going too mad was tough so I, tr I had to sort of constrain myself a little bit with that and then the second part that I found tough, and again, a reason why I think is a beta and why I think it's probably, it's not a perfect scheme in any way, shape or form, is the key stage one stuff. Because I've never taught key stage one. As a cover teacher I have, I've done some virtual school stuff for key stage one. But, um, you know, I went from teaching year seven to 13, to year six, to year five. I feel comfortable probably going and teaching year four and year three. But Key Stage 1 is not my wheelhouse, and I've had some really good input from our Key Stage 1 team um, in terms, so it's already better than it was, which I'm really happy about. Um, I had some really, really good input from our deputy head, Was really went through some of the units and looked at the vocab and looked at, you know, making it as really Key Stage 1 friendly. But um, that was really tough. It's really tough trying to plan Key Stage 1, especially in the middle of a pandemic when you can't just go and look at it. Now when, I'm, when I want to plan a year one thing or tweak a year one i just go and stare at year one for a while just stand in the corner of the classroom and be like okay this is what we're this is who we're, we're pitching this out and, you know go and look at year two like, they might just be doing phonics or art or something but just like this is okay this is what a six-year-old looks like this is what this is what we're doing you can't do that in the middle of a pandemic they're imaginary so not only are you like recording these videos for imagined five or six-year-olds but you also desperately racking your brains trying to remember what a five or six year old looks like like are they already five foot ten by the time they're in year two like i don't know because the pandemic does funny things to your brain and really i couldn't really recall so that was tough that was really tough key stage one was really tough but you know the the proof is in the pudding i'll be more interested than anything in going and observing some key stage one lessons with these materials and getting some feedback and key stage one teachers like I say they did end up being a bit more of a teacher script because I didn't want to put it on an actual page as a script I thought that was a bit too far you know I quite like the idea of having a script but that's not gonna 
be everyone's cup of tea. So they're on a PowerPoint, but when you, when you, I don't, I'm not expecting year one students to like be able to, to, to do the kind of reading that, that, you know, year fives can. So there we go. That's, that's the answer. Key stage one and um, not going mad on the curriculum stuff and just making a reflection of your own interests. I mean, that's a really sensible approach because it's, you're not going, no one's ever going to get anything right first time. And whenever I think about um, sort of my preferred sequences through mathematics, you know, I'm normally banging on about 50 years. Okay, these guys have been refining this approach for 50 years. That's quality assurance, you know? So, for you know, that you're saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to release iteration after iteration, taking on board, you know, the key stage one, one in particular. You know, because there are some resources that my wife, year one teacher, is refining because to make them more accessible for key stage one. You know, so she's gone through that thought process as a teacher, whereas you, the sort of the the person who is driving the the curriculum itself and the resources themselves, you're having the fact that you're having that thought. I think is is really really sensible. I can't ask my last question without a little bit more information because one of the things we've sort of skimmed over is the fact that accompanying these resources will be some professional development and quite a quite a substantial amount of professional do you want to tell us a bit more about what you have offered almost to reconcile the idea that you're charging other people and other schools should pay for your work because you put the effort in you've made something of really high quality but I know that that's not an easy balance because most of us don't get in to education with a business background or where that's the norm. So yeah, so what professional development have you sort of designed? What, what can schools look forward to? Yeah, I mean, I, the, I don't feel horrendous about it at the end of the day because I know that I'm, I don't benefit, I don't profit personally from any of this. So the money goes into our school's coffers and gets spent on, you know, bunting for our Jubilee street party and things like that. So it's a lot of bunting. Um, so what do I, I mean, I love doing these twilight CPD sessions. I've done a few of them now and I turn up, um, I turned up in the pouring rain the other day to a really nice school in Peckham that's taken on our curriculum. And I had, um, I've got my, my like RE go bag, um, that is sits in my classroom for when I go and do CPD. Um, that's got like, I basically just went around the school at some point and stole the top like strata of RE booklets from classrooms. I was like, I'm not going to pick the most beautiful booklets. I'm not going to pick the, like the most, you know, high achieving booklets. We're just going to take the top 20% and we'll just take whatever's there. And uh, so that's my kind of like honest approach to it is like, this is what it looks like in our school. So these are the kind of outcomes that we've had. Oh, they missed a lesson here. Yeah, of course they did because, you know, they had sports day. Oh, you know, this piece of writing goes completely off the wall because, yeah, of course it does. Uh, you know, this is me presenting a realistic idea. So turn up, hand out all these curriculum materials, hand out an overview of the curriculum, and then just talk about this RE curriculum that I've made, basically a bit like I've done in the podcast, so just go kind of mad on the enthusiasm. And uh, I think a lot of the feedback I've had about these sessions is that because I'm so enthusiastic about it, because it is my sort of like pet project, because I love it so much, um, it gets a lot of staff on board who might be quite sceptical about working with an outside scheme of work or working with a, they can see that it's something that kind of has had love put into it and thought put into it. So I go and I talk about the rationale behind it, show off some of the 
resources, some of the PowerPoints. There's no real set flow to it. It just uh, it's based on people's feedback in the room and questions that they might have. Um, I don't even have a PowerPoint that I use. I just use my sort of like iPad and I write down notes as we go. Um, and so there's that CPD session introducing it, which uh, is, was one of the reasons I've sort of said that it's restricted to London really is because um, I don't want to be taking loads of time off. I'm a full-time class teacher. I'm really fortunate to have a full day of PPA on a Wednesday. So if I can leave school at kind of like 2.30 to get to another school at 3.30, 4 o'clock, um so someone was asking me the other day in seven oaks and, and i was like oh looking at train times like yeah okay we could stretch to seven oaks it's also quite a london-centric curriculum i'm really obsessed with the local in re so almost every kind of example of a church and a mosque and a gurdwara is in london some one of the units is specifically looking at christianity in london um so yeah that's if you kind of contact me and you're saying that you're in full kirk probably won't be able to get there um after work on a wednesday uh, although I guess I could always do virtual CPD. I'm just so like averse to Zoom now, um, having been through the pandemic. And then like ongoing professional support. So um, whatever you want that to mean, really. Like I love talking about this thing. I love going into schools to see it in practice. Um, I love doing coaching on it. I love getting feedback on it. So I'm kind of, that's why I want to keep it quite a small project at the moment because I want to be able to genuinely offer that to people because it's, it's quite different. A lot of people get lumbered with, being the RE lead, <laughs> I think we talked about this before, that it's, it's seen as a bit of a stepping stone for the, you know, an NQT plus one to do um, until they can be the, the English lead or until they can be a year lead. I was going to throw an unexpected question your way to see if there's anything that you would be taking away for future instances of curriculum design from listening to Adam. It would only just be mirroring kind of what Adam said, really. It's like with that carte blanche, like... Oh gosh, I can now write a history curriculum. What does that look like? That, that can look like anything that I want it to, and the kind of the social responsibility that goes with that. Like, am I teaching them the right thing, the wrong thing? Um, and yeah, just kind of like, what this, what does this look like at key stage one? Because my unpopular opinion, I don't know if it is unpopular. It might be quite popular actually. Is that for key stage one, particularly year one, like your history geography re all those kind of humanities could just be done through like right kids like sit on the carpet i'm now gonna read you a story and it could just all be done through story and if they're not putting pen to paper then they're not putting pen to paper that's absolutely fine it's just like if they're coming up to year three you know having a rich bank of you know uh, historical stories and you know um, stories about religion and stuff like that then i think they'd be um far better than uh, far in a far better position than just you know i'm going to try and teach you some re for 20 minutes and get you to fill out a worksheet in those last kind of 10 minutes because i've overrun question i have then just kind of based on what you said about how much you like to make it about the local uh, assuming that, that this school in falkirk does um pay their 400 pound for it and you are able to do some virtual cpd how much can they actually um edit that final package to kind of like suit that context uh, and i kind of i mean that from a, a wider theoretical level at the kind of macro planning level to the micro you know are these booklets in are they in word format so if they want to kind of keep your formatting they can just like change a few things around so it's an interesting conversation we've had because 
this gets to the real mundane kind of like stuff about sharing a curriculum with other schools. When we've shared other elements of our curriculum, it's been quite locked down and heavily designed. So we've got like a, a graphic designer who works for our school, um, who does incredible work on our well-being curriculum, for example. We've been selling that and sharing that with other schools, but it's quite a lockdown product because it's in these beautifully designed booklets that um, we send out. We actually send out the physical copies of them to other schools. There are pros and cons to all uh, these different approaches. There's a pros and cons to sending out as like Word documents and basically letting schools have their complete way to it. And there's also pros and cons to sending out under a bit more of a lockdown um, format. So I... I'm sending out the booklets as PDFs um, because I think that not, I don't know, I think you have to be realistic about it. You don't want it to just be whacked on Tez by some like rogue kind of teacher. You don't want it to be um, perhaps shared in a way that you lose control or ownership over it. Um, maybe I shouldn't be as worried about that as I am, but it does, you know, is, I, I wouldn't want to see kind of mutilated, not that I think people do terrible things to it, but like, you know, it would worry me slightly um, to just send it out in a totally open format. I don't know. I mean, that that gets to kind of like almost an egotism on my part about it. But anyway, that is there is the deeper thinking behind sending out in that way. So if a school did want to, yeah, alter the content, I've got more freedom over the PDA, over the PowerPoints because you can't really um, lock those down too far. They are um, always going to be open to see in that format. And then what I've had other schools do before is use it as a template for creating their own units. So say that they did want to do, um, you know, take for it, say, say it was going out to a school in Newcastle and they wanted to do a unit about Christianity in Newcastle. They can see how I've planned out the unit about London and they could kind of uh, create their own unit about Newcastle using a similar format. So I think that would be a good compromise. And again, I can support with that. I can provide templates for people. That's what I've done in the past. But yeah, there's it's, it's a weird thing to do is to send this out into the world. You know you're going to lose control over it. You know you're going to lose, you know, that you have to give up some of, some of your preciousness about it. But also there are things, you know, that's again why I don't want it to go out to hundreds of schools in the first iteration because I'm, I'm proud of it and because I want it to be um, cared for and loved. And I think if schools are going to pay an amount for it, then hopefully that will encourage them to care for and love it rather than just kind of not do any training on it, not invest in it, not kind of care for it, um, which so often happens with uh, the locally agreed syllabus resources because they're just free uh, to schools they can just have them and then you end up seeing them used in slightly like underwhelming ways even though a lot of love and thought might have gone into them originally they because they're free schools don't value them and so schools don't do training on them and so schools don't have people who are invested in teaching them which is um i guess not really the opinion that i thought i would be having but it is apparently the opinion i have so yeah that's a really interesting different way to look about it because i used to be quite uh quite happy and quite content with the idea you know a, a school or a person within the school has created something then you know, they have that freedom to retain it and if they want to you know, sell it on despite the fact, you know, the taxpayer is technically paying for our salaries, so shouldn't all kind of schools benefit that from that because it's the taxpayer, not the individual school, etc. Um, so, you know, shouldn't curriculum resources, you know, be given away, but I kind of 
yeah, that's given me something to think about this idea that if it is just given away for free, then, you know, what happens to it? Is it valued? Does it then actually get implemented well in the classroom? So that's certainly given me another perspective to uh, consider such things from. Yeah, there's definitely a psychological phenomenon about that. Did we discuss that before? I think we possibly might have. But yeah, if, if you put a small arbitrary price on something as opposed to free, you're, you're going to get more engagement on the, where, you, where you put a where you placed a value on it. And I'll, I'll need to really rack my brains to think, who did I have that conversation with? Was it Chris Such who uh, wrote the blog post about, you know, things being free and available? And, you know, I, <laughs> I guess I disagree with him. I guess I disagree with him. And I'm not just saying that because that's the situation I find myself in, but um, I, I do think there is something to be said, like you say, for the psychology of we paid for this, we've invested in it. Because I'm a nerd, I was looking at um, spelling schemes because uh, I, I, you know, I'm, we have a scheme that we use. There we go. Uh, and there are better schemes out there and there are worse schemes out there. And um, I was really intrigued by this scheme um, yeah, that Jason Wade has called Sounds and Syllables. Um, and, you know, and he sells it and it comes as a package and um, you get CPD with it and stuff like that. And I think if it was free, I'd probably have just butchered bits from it and kind of not really taken on board the whole approach. And um, and I'd have uh, used a bit here and there and I might have put a booklet together with a couple of uh, photocopies and maybe used it as an extension thing and not really given much thought to it and kind of not really not really used it in the proper way because it's a whole considered scheme and it's got loads of you know it's not just what what i really like about that scheme is that i think there's like five different elements to it five different parts of teaching spelling and i would have just taken some of the pdfs whack them in a booklet called an extension booklet and you know tick i've got something to stretch people spellers whatever and but because there's a price on it i didn't do that now it means that i'm not using his resources at all even though it's quite a good approach to spelling but then it means that if I was to use his resources, I would get the training and I would get the full package and I would get all the elements and we would completely shift the way that we teach spelling and it would be a wholesale kind of reinvention and things would be used in the proper way. So I guess that would be my sort of counterpoint to Chris's blog would be, I do think that having a monetary value, even if it's quite a small monetary value, does create in the minds of teachers, at least in the minds of SLT maybe, an actual value um, and a willingness to do things properly as opposed to use things piecemeal. You know, I think white rose maths is another example of they just get, we use a bit of white rose here and a bit of white rose there to supplement our math scheme. And um, it means we're probably not doing it, probably not using it to its full potential. And I think if I created some of the white rose stuff, I'd maybe not particularly feel happy with just the odd bit being shoved in here and there to fill gaps. Um, if I was particularly precious about it, which I am particularly precious about this RE scheme because it's, you know, it's my baby. So, yeah. No, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. I think, you know, in my head, I'm already thinking, when can I get Adam back to talk about his book writing process? That sounds like one I might have Chris Such involved in too. So we can maybe hash that out as part of that episode and maybe make that like a behind the scenes conversation. <laughs> a little debate yeah i know i'd love to come and talk about writing the book i think for i you know for a year now i think every time i come on you say how's the book coming and i'm always really sheepish and like oh i've written some words i thought of a title um but actually this half term i finally got on and sat down and um 
people whacking out. I think I read a piece of advice. I've read a book recently about writing books, which is very meta. They were saying, you know, just get words, just write, just write what's in your head on a page, do all the like footnotes afterwards, do all the research and the anecdotes and whatever, put all that in afterwards, but just get your word count in. And so this half term, I've just been on word count duty, sat doing word count. So um, <laughs> doing word count. I think that I might change my, um, my MySpace status to Adam Smith is doing word count. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was great to see your um your post about how organized you're being and how you're having the five sort of key areas and the book was a bit hard to write really good non-fiction i'm definitely going to read that book yeah do you know it was really good actually it was a is really meta because it's a book about how to effectively write non-fiction that is also a really well-written book about how to it's all about writing for an audience and imagining an audience and thinking about your audience really carefully and i you know not ironically whatever the opposite of ironically is it does really well consider its audience and it does really think about it's really personal and meaningful and there's not a lot of guff in it yeah i have to have a i have to have a way of breaking it all down because i think part of being a bit scatterbrained and a bit adhd is that you need smaller goals so it's like you know 10 chapters Five thousand words a chapter, five sections, a thousand words a section. Do you know what? That's really doable. I can do a thousand words in like an hour uh, or less sometimes. So that's much more manageable. I just try not to zoom out too far. So if I do a thousand word section, I just try not to look at the big list of empty sections that are still coming. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'd love to come and talk about book writing. Not because I think I'm any particular expert, but for the exact reason that I'm a complete novice. Suddenly thought, oh, I should write a book, and there's not really. You know, there's lots of education books, but there's no education books about writing an education book, which is perhaps um, perhaps my next project. Yeah. <laughs> if John Ketter no, listening. Don't hold me to that. Please don't hold me to that. <laughs> Someone needs to write that book before I start <laughs> writing mine. If I ever do, <laughs> people tell me I should. You've got to you open your free school first. Free school and then the book about how well the free school went or how badly it went. I'd rather read a book about how badly it went. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be called the Neil Almond Free School or NAF School for short. So it yeah. can't, you know, exactly, it's going to have to go terribly badly, but it will yeah. have a really good RE curriculum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which leads me on to my last question. How can schools get involved? Obviously, you want to control the sample. <laughs> but what are their options at this point in time? Um, the options are to um, contact me. So a lot of, I don't tend to check my message requests on Twitter. Um, so if you're uh, wanting to contact me, the best way is to email me uh, to, through my school email, which is adamsmith at charlesdickens.southwark uk, uh, or if we mutually follow each other on twitter then definitely dm me or um if you know me if you're not in the tadape discord then you should join the tadape discord because i do respond to messages on there i just my twitter message requests are um a bit i it's it's one of those things that you open them and you, you feel instantly guilty about all the unread messages that are in there all really nice people but i just don't have the time to to necessarily um, respond to all the queries. Um, so I think, yeah, the best way is Discord or email, um, get in touch, and then I can send you some sample materials. So we have two, two schemes of work a year, I wanna say year two and a year five scheme of work, but that might not be right, um, that are available for you to look at. And there's also a spec sheet that explains some of the rationale behind it. 
um, and the cost of it. And then, yeah, and then we can invoice you for it and um, and I can come in and do some CPD. And then actually it's not quite ready yet. It's one of my summer two big jobs is to get it ready for, um, so the curriculum materials will go out probably in um, just before the summer holidays to those people who've kind of got it on board. Um, but yeah, at the moment we're, we're in less than 10 schools and I think it'd be nice to, you know, 10, 20 would be a manageable number. Um, like I say, London is kind of an arbitrary geographical limit I put on London and some areas of the Southeast that are nice. Um, so I'm not going to go to East Grinstead, sorry. Uh, I'm not going to go to Crawley, um, but I will go to uh, Windsor and I will go to uh, Rochester because I like Rochester. Um, so yeah, that's a joke, by the way. I mean, it's probably not really a joke. But <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, get in touch and um, I'll chat to you on Zoom or in person at the pub, which I've done before, which is nice, or um, over the phone, which I hate. So can we do it on Zoom? <laughs> Yeah, I don't like telephone calls either. People don't understand what I'm saying. So I spend a lot of time yeah. going slowly and repeating myself. I don't know what it is about phone calls that are so horrible. Why? Like even doing a WhatsApp call is nicer than doing an actual telephone call. I really hate phone calls. You'll have to let us know when you're in Rochester because there's some... Oh, yeah, that's quite, that's quite close to where we are. Yeah, oh, nice, definitely. Well, you, you could probably see from my the end of my road because I live in South End. You can see Kent and... Uh, wave over on a good day you can see the way to um Hearn Bay and Whitstable and things so. yeah um, I mean I see no reason why five ten years from now this won't be the prescribed national curriculum for religious education five years that's a bit <laughs> two years <surely. laughs> I mean when are you becoming education minister again because you can definitely wangle that um no 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 it's they are the, the I mean it's a bit like the book there just isn't something equivalent that that fills this gap so it, that's what I like about this in a way is it's not going up against there there's a big Christianity scheme that the Church of England uses there's uh, other schemes that have totally different pedagogical approaches and I this is it there's this is going out there um, I probably wouldn't have put it out there at this point if there was another competing scheme because as I say it's a beta no it's not perfect um, but it's going out there because I've done a lot of, um, what do they call it, SLE work, you know, where you go out to other schools and I always end up just having the same conversation and being really enthusiastic about RE and then they say, and uh, yeah, so where, where can we buy in a scheme? And I'm like, well, hmm, well, wait until mine's ready and then you can maybe buy in that. <laughs> and then finally got around to actually doing that. So um, yeah, I'm trying not to... Uh, get too many backs up with it but hopefully there's no one's backs to get up because there's nothing to compete against so I, I hope it goes well I know it'll go well and I think if anyone's listening and they are in a mainstream school local authority school and obviously you've got certain limitations on what you can and cannot teach I think even just listening to what your guiding principles and how you've approached this I think can help develop the quality of RE yeah, I think um, in a local authority school, technically speaking, you have to teach your locally agreed syllabus. You can sit down and cross-reference a locally agreed syllabus with what I offer and then fill in any gaps. Um, you will probably find there's a lot of crossover because locally agreed syllabuses, syllabi tend to be quite vague. Uh, but also, as I've said previously, I think on this podcast, there's no local authority 
syllabus vans that go around to detect whether you are teaching the locally agreed syllabus. Ofsted, frankly, just want to see that you're teaching good quality RE and that it's timetabled. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, legally, maybe I'll get into legal trouble for that because it's a legal thing. You have to teach a locally agreed syllabus if you're a maintained school. Uh, maybe a free school or an academy. Um, you don't have to worry about it. So you can teach whatever you want, including my wonderful scheme. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I guess, um, I don't know if you were able to see it, I have um, Kenneth, Kenneth Clark Civilizations next to me. It was in a charity shop. So I'm just wondering how much of Kenneth Clark Civilization, uh, either advertently or inadvertently, is in this curriculum? Uh, the year five and six scheme of work is just that series, Kenneth Clark Civilization. They start with lesson one, the Ice Age, and it goes all the way through to clinging on by the skin of our teeth, uh, the, the lesson of the episode about World War II. So I'm a massive Kenneth Clark fan. I think he's more talks more good stuff. He talks more good stuff. He um, he's he's a better guy to talk to about uh, the knowledge-rich cultural curriculum than Edie Hirsch. He's got his head screwed on. Does old Kenneth Clark? So there's definite Kenneth Clark on him through there. Big influence. I think between uh, Clark and uh, Jacob Bronowski, I think, and the essential. Oh. I think oh. you've got there a mixture. But there's any reason why the uh, you know powerful knowledge is so powerful and so important it's just sit down and watch civilizations and watch the ascent of man and you'll understand why yeah couldn't agree more he's actually the inspiration for my approach to saying um less because obviously when, when when i first started recording this i would say um quite a lot but watching him and the pauses he takes between words and in the middle of sentences is really, is, you know, it really helps. You need to get that really plummy accent now that Kenneth Clark has. I think I get that on 20 years in England, don't I? That's when my accent changes. And, yeah, exactly. Know, it's goodbye sort of backstory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, Kenneth I, Clark is actually from Newry, so it took him a while as well to get there. Oh, it's not really It's a joke. <laughs> I was going to say it's really close to where I'm from. <laughs> if you manage to get rid of an eerie accent, you know, anything's possible. <laughs> um, it's, it's been wonderful, as always, guys. Really appreciate it. All I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> and everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Sorry, Adam, we we're just kind of talking about what questions can we throw at you uh, last minute without you've actually uh, been prepared. Oh, it's fine. Lob away, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs>